elevator shuttle has arrived. Beta, this is an unexpected pleasure. We're honored by your presence. Yo, G, I'll be here to see why your homies ain't working their booties off. I assure you, Lord Beta, our men are working as fast as they can. We be seeing if they get this ride going with six foot seven of black staring down at them. I tell you, this station will be operational as Well, the man don't think so, and he be cruising down here to check out this ride. The Empress coming here? Yeah, and he gonna put a cap in your white ass. We shall double our efforts. Damn straight. And remember, this be CNN. Afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing beetle fires, oak fires, and carbs not on fire. In addition, we'll be joined by Alicia Soderberg discussing uh, gamma ray bursts. Also, we'll find out how birds find their way home. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. Back to Berkeley Rocks, I'm Frank Wing. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad, not too bad. It's been an incredibly hot week, don't you think? Uh, I wouldn't know. I've actually been out of town, so uh, you'd have to tell me about that. It's been a very hot week. Oh, wow. It's, I've heard something about that. Yeah, and the Mainly forests... from you. Okay. And the, uh, the forests are burning, aren't they? Oh, yes, I guess they are, which is uh, actually... It should be actually something of a good thing. Normally. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, because uh, people have been complaining for years that, in fact, the uh, over-conservation efforts have, in fact, uh, resulted in much more drastic fire, forest fires than uh, they have been, right? Okay. Is it because of, uh, of excessive growth of materials that burn when it gets finally dry? Uh, I guess that's what they're assuming, yeah. So that, in fact, when they actually do have fires, they're much worse than they actually would have been. Darn. Yes, indeed. So maybe we should just uh, let them burn, huh? <laughs> Let's smoke them out. Yes. All those... And uh, the people who harbor them. There are many people who harbor them. All right, well, I guess uh, that's actually a good uh, lead into one of the stories which we have uh, concerning fire. Actually, I have two of them, but this is uh, something interesting. I like fire. Yeah. It actually has to do with fire and death. Fire and death. Yeah. There's something cathartic about that, isn't there? There's something uh, very, very cathartic about it. Uh, what it actually is is that uh, sudden oak death, which is uh, very common, I guess, in, in California and spreading, I guess, around the Pacific Northwest, right. um, is a very common sort of thing in, in, 
more recently. Uh, but what they're showing is, in fact, that uh, fire, forest fires, may in fact prevent the occurrence of sudden oak death. By uh, heating it up a little bit or something? No, well, actually what they're saying is that, in fact, well, the finding is essentially that uh, this pathogen, uh, Phytophthora remorum, uh, when they look at the incidence of its occurrence compared to areas which either had recently suffered a forest fire or those who didn't, mm -hmm. they just found that areas which had recently burned had less of an occurrence of uh, sudden oak death. Oh, okay. Must be some sort of disinfection going on, huh? <laughs> uh, that could be one of it. The other reason, the thing they're suggesting is that, well, there's probably less competition for the trees growing around more nutrients in the soil, right. so their defenses might be uh, a little bit better than they would be uh, if it was overgrown. And of course, as plants age, of course, their defenses get a little worse, too. Yeah, I got a bunch of oaks in my neighborhood. I'm not sure what to do about them, though. <laughs> I, I don't know. Talk to them nicely. Talking to your plants always help. Yes. All right, so if people are concerned about uh, sudden oak death coming to their uh, backyard? Uh, well, I guess set fire to their backyard, but that wouldn't be a good thing. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, actually, they can take a look at this. Uh, it, was recent, it was presented at a recent meeting at the Ecological Society of America. So, Charles, what's the most expensive scientific instrument you ever used? Um, I guess that would have to be a thermometer. <laughs> Ooh, not the Hubble Space Telescope? Uh, I've only had occasion to use that never. Uh. So, <laughs> in fact, that's not another list. Not even to look at your ass from uh, above the sky. I'm not really sure how that would be done, really. <laughs> but <laughs> if, if it could be done with the Hubble Telescope, I'm sure the uh, images would be just striking. <laughs> In Strikingly the, disturbing, in fact. <laughs> if it's so disturbing, then you're probably glad to know that they're going to put it out of commission pretty soon. Yeah, or at least uh, stop funding for uh, the, um, the repairs on it, right? Right. And in fact, this week, one of the instruments, the Space Telescope Imaging Spectrograph, shut down. Oh, was it just uh, from old age, or was it... Probably from old age, the, uh, the power supply just uh, failed. Because I'm always worried about those aliens attacking the uh, Hubble Space Telescope, which happens quite often. Right, and then they prevent uh, the dolphins to uh, communicate with them, and then... Was like, the suddenly dolphins? Oh, yeah, I guess the dolphins were the sperm whales. <laughs> oh, the sperm whales, right. And then we have like, this worldwide catastrophe because of that. Yeah, yeah. Depends, I guess, whether you're on the Star Trek or the Hitchhiker's Guide uh, <laughs> universe. So I guess basically this news doesn't exactly drive a nail into the coffin of the Hubble Space Telescope, but it does give them a less incentive to uh, go back and uh, repair it. See, I don't understand this at all, because uh, who's the genius that thinks that uh, not funding a space telescope would be cheaper than actually setting up a new one or something? Uh, you got to wonder. Yeah, but yeah, so what are they planning on doing then? Nothing much. It's just for the evidence that Hubble is showing its age. <laughs> Hubble is indeed showing its age. All right, well, I will reserve my indignance for uh, the uh, Republican right wing, and <laughs> we'll just find out where this is uh, coming from. And interestingly, this came from Chemical and Engineering News this week. It's kind of amazing that Chemical and Engineering News covers uh, things as broad as... Uh the Hubble Space Telescope. Yes, I'm uh, quite pleased about it, actually. Yeah, well, science has no boundaries. Nor does fire, because it has uh, transcended uh, not just one story, but two stories today. Wow. <laughs> yes. Uh, this one involving fires and beetles. Fires and beetles? Yes. You mean uh, the rock band beetles? 
<laughs> they were on fire, and they're still on fire in my heart. I still swoon every time I see Ringo. So who's the water? <laughs> I don't know. I guess that would be the monkeys. <laughs> so it's actually quite interesting because uh, some beetles, it turns out, are actually able to detect uh, regions where there have been forest fires uh, most recently. And so uh, a particular beetle called the jewel beetle, scientific name Melanophilia acuminate, has specialized uh, receptors on its uh, legs that allow it to detect uh, heat. Oh, and he's not in their ass? <laughs> <laughs> you have sort of an ass fixation today. <laughs> yeah, I have to say on something each week, you know. Well, I guess so. I mean, uh, all right, so uh, it turns out, though, that the bug uh, has these disks of cuticle, these tiny pits under its wings, uh, it turns out, which absorb infrared radiation at the 3 micrometer uh, wavelength. And so this is quite interesting because uh, uh, researchers at the University of Bonn in Germany have created a synthetic version of this uh, from polyethylene platelets, and they've used this to actually manufacture uh, heat sensors. And so what they're saying is that they can actually put these in uh, little devices in, mm-hmm. in the forest, and they'd actually be better sensors for uh, fire than, say, smoke detectors, which can just waft over large distances. Right. So uh, it could be a possible indication for uh, detecting fires in your neighborhood. Cool. And if anyone wants to know more about these smart beetles... Uh, the smart beetles or the uh, the synthetic uh, things can be found in a recent edition of the Journal of Comparative Physiology. All right, Charles, so uh, how's your zone diet coming along? Still in the zone. I've uh, been in the zone for two years now. Wow. <laughs> so it's low carbs, right? Uh, low carbs, moderate protein. So not as bad as the Atkins, but still quite good. Well, I guess there's some more good news for those uh, people on the lower-carb diets. Uh, it turns out you may have a decreased risk of breast cancer. Thank God, because <laughs> I've been worried about that, <laughs> as well as my declining calcium with my age. <laughs> Uh, so there's a study that was carried out uh, in Mexico recently with 1,800 Mexican women, and they found that those who obtained more than 62% of their calories from carbs were twice as likely to develop breast cancer. Uh-huh. Why was it uh, mainly Mexican women they chose? Do not know. Probably just because they have uh, more carbohydrates in their diet normally, or? It's possible. Uh, Corns and yeah. what other starches. Yeah, that could be it. But I would think that would skew the results a little bit <laughs> if you just chose one, one population of people. I, I guess the theory here is that the more carbs you eat, the more insulin you produce, as, long, as well as this protein that seems to cause a cell uh-huh. proliferation, and that could be causing the cancers. Right. Well, that's, that's sort of the, the tenet of a lot of uh, low-carb things, is that the insulin, which is the master regulator hormone of uh, a lot of other hormones, like prostaglandins and thromboxins, things like that. It sort of regulates these so-called batter hormones, and so it can give rise to all kinds of things like breast cancer, testicular cancer, or today I guess it would be ass cancer. (laughs) (laughs) That hurts, man. Yeah. The other nice thing is if you take a lot of fiber, that seems to mitigate the effects of taking a lot of carbs. Okay. I guess that actually slows the digestion of... uh, The uh, absorption of carbs. The absorption of carbs, yeah. This is uh, interesting work carried out by Walter Willett of Harvard University, and it's in the recent edition of Cancer, Epidemiology, Biomarkers, and Prevention. (laughs) That's the longest journal title I've ever heard. (laughs) Wow. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Alicia Soderberg will join us to talk about cosmic explosions in the sky. So stay tuned.
welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. Well, the death of a star, as tragic as it may sound in real life, is a violent phenomena in outer space. Often this event is marked by a supernova or emissions of gamma ray radiation. Well, joining us today is a special guest to talk about the latest developments in cosmic explosions, graduate researcher Alicia Soderberg from the California Institute of Technology. Uh, Ms. Soderberg works with Professor Kulkarni in analyzing radio and X-ray data from outer space. Ms. Soderberg, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grocks today. Hi. Yeah, so first of all, could you tell us what exactly is a supernova or a gamma-ray burst? Sure. So a gamma-ray burst is a short burst of gamma-ray photons from a source that's usually very far away. These events are the most luminous explosions in the universe for a few seconds, and the sort of outcome of the explosion is uh, an afterglow, where the debris is actually heated up by the explosion and emits radio waves and optical photons. Can these events be observed with the naked eye, like a supernova, perhaps? Yes, if they're nearby enough. There was one recently, in 2003, that was nearby enough that amateur observers were able to give visual magnitudes of them. How exactly are gamma-ray bursts different from supernovas? So there's very many kinds of supernovas. Specifically, gamma-ray bursts are associated with core-collapse supernovae of a specific variety called type 1bc. So in that sense, gamma-ray bursts are type 1bc supernovae. Unfortunately, the inverse is not also true. Not every type 1bc supernovae is a gamma-ray burst. That part we're still looking into. Does this mean that a black hole is formed in the event of this collapse, or does it simply mean that there's a collapse of the uh, star's core? We know that uh, either a black hole or a neutron star is formed in the gamma-ray burst in the stellar collapse. So this event that was observed last December, there seems to be a few quirks about it, namely that it's brighter than a supernova but weaker than the the gamma-ray burst. What's unusual about this finding? Uh, Prior to this discovery, we we were under the impression that all gamma-ray bursts had sort of a standard luminosity, almost like a standard candle. They all put out the same amount of energy in various forms, but the discovery of this recent object implies that that's not the case, that in fact maybe there's gamma-ray bursts that are much fainter or less energetic than Mm -hmm. those we had previously been detecting. And the reason we're not detecting these sub-energetic events is just because they're hard to detect, they're below our detection threshold. And what does this tell about the way uh, stars die off? I think it tells us that there is more diversity than we had realized. It uh, presents another piece of um, observational clues for the theorists and those that try to simulate how the stars actually die. Yeah, I understand you are using data from both the uh, the Channer X-ray Observatory as well as the, uh, the radio telescope. Is there a particular reason you focus on these two uh, bandwidths? Sure. Um, there's a couple of reasons. Actually, first of all, they probe very different areas of the spectrum. So you get both the very long wavelengths and the very short wavelengths. Mm -hmm. And that gives you a better idea about what the spectrum is doing on a large scale. The second reason is typically the optical region becomes dominated by supernova emission, which is produced during a radioactive process. And it's hard to get a feel for the actual underlying spectrum of the gamma-ray burst during the timescale when the supernova dominates. So that's why we avoid the optical during a you know, a time scale of 10 to 30 days or so. This uh, radio bandwidth, does that correspond to like, the synchrotron radiation? Yes. I see, and that's where, like, the magnetic field of this object is rotating of electrons going through that, is that correct? Yes. And then in terms of the X-ray observations, what was uh, significant about 
this uh, December 3rd event? The x-rays were significantly fainter than most than the x-rays produced by most GRBs. They were up to a thousand times fainter. So that was interesting right from the get-go that there was something different about this, this burst. Um, they also had an unusual decay rate. It was very slow, and it's typically only seen in supernovae, whereas GRBs or gamma-ray bursts tend to have X-ray emission, which decays quite quickly. So this sort of hinted that maybe there's something going on in this gamma-ray burst similar to supernovae and less similar to gamma-ray bursts. There's been talk about so-called uh, hypernovas. Uh, could you tell us if any of this is related to that? Sure. Uh, so a hypernova is, um, has a loose definition, but it's generally used to describe the optical emission from a supernova, specifically a 1BC supernova, the kind associated with gamma-ray bursts. Mm-hmm. Um, it, what is seen is the optical spectroscopy of the event show very broad lines, meaning that the ejecta are traveling very fast, almost mildly relativistically. And uh, for that reason, they are called hypernovae. So I'm just curious here, I guess, to put this in perspective, in terms of, say, the sun, our uh, solar system, when it finally runs out of fuel, do you have a feeling what kind of fate it's going to take? Will it be similar to some of these supernovas? Sure. It's not going to make a gamma-ray burst type of supernova. It will make a much more, well, a less, much less exciting uh, endpoint, just because it's uh, the mass of the sun is much less than the mass of the stars that produce TRBs. So it will just cool off and faint away? or? Uh, yes, it will, it will have a distinctively less, um, less exciting, less dramatic ending. It will just sort of fade away, as you're saying, mm-hmm. and cool off. Well, we're very excited about your research. Are there any last comments you'd like to add about it? I guess not very much. Uh, one exciting thing is there's going to be the launch of a new satellite. It's called the SWIFT satellite in October. And uh, the prediction is that it will hopefully find a lot more of these interesting hybrid objects like the recent gamma bursts that we've been studying. So I guess stay tuned because there should be a lot of exciting stuff to happen. Thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. Thank you. And we were just talking to Miss Alicia Soderberg from the California Institute of Technology on supernovas and gamma ray bursts. This is Mercury Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll find out how a fire extinguisher works, so stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. And now here's the Everyday Science Lady with this week's Everyday Science. Ever wonder how fire extinguishers do their job? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Many different substances can catch fire. Wood, paper, gas, oil, electrical wiring, you name it. And for every flammable material, there's a fire extinguisher designed to put out that particular type of fire. Today, we're going to look at a typical carbon dioxide fire extinguisher, the kind you find in most homes. Anyone have one handy? Phew, that was close. Hey, what do you say we crawl up inside the tank and take a closer look? Feel that? The carbon dioxide, or CO2, in here is under tremendous pressure. It's in liquid form. And if grease or some flammable gas ignites around the house and someone is smart enough to have a fire extinguisher handy, all they have to do is press the trigger on the outside of this tank and hold on. The carbon dioxide is released as a blast of very cold, snowy gas. Look, we're headed straight for that flame. As we hit the fire, look what the carbon dioxide does. See the oxygen molecules that are fanning the fire? The CO2's molecules are heavier than the oxygen, so it basically shoves the oxygen aside. Not only that, the CO2 robs the fire of its hot temperature because the CO2 is icy cold. And once whatever's burning is no longer hot enough to ignite, you stop the fire cold. Or should I say, we've stopped the fire cold. Well, thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, making science make sense. Oh, thanks a lot, Everyday Science lady. That was really a breath of fresh air, or I guess it's CO2. For you, lady, I would breathe CO2 for you anytime. All right, now here's Sean Connery with the, an- with the answer to last week's question of the week. Ha, ha, ha! The is mine! Ha, ha! Yes, well, thank you there, Frank. It's always good to be back here at the Berkeley Grox studio. Yes, right. Oh, yes, right. That's what's the answer to last week's question of the week. Ha, 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 ha! The is mine! And so is the pigeons. How do they find their way home? Ha, ha, ha! It's obvious. They use magnetic fields. And the day of death. Thank you, Mr. Connery. And now, this week's question of the week. They are a cancer, a disease. They are spots on the sun. But where do they come from? If you know the answer, or think you know the answer, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you'll still stay in the matrix. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie. <laughs>